G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and happy Australia Day. Are we allowed to say that? Can I say happy Australia Day? It's Invasion Day. Happy Invasion Day. It sounds. It feels a bit like, you know, on Remembrance Day or Anzac Day or one of those other days that commemorates war. You don't say happy Remembrance Day. Sad Remembrance Day in honour of Remembrance Day. <sighs> if you're not Australian, you may not be familiar with the brouhaha that exists around Australia Day. It is no small brouhaha. It is a brouhaha. And I intend to keep saying the word brouhaha as many times as is humanly possible over the course of this uh, episode. It is a brouhaha that has effectively castrated Australia's ability to celebrate itself. Um, I don't celebrate Australia Day. Most Australians I know don't celebrate Australia Day. And if they do, it's with so many asterisks and caveats and um, sort of guilty nods to white privilege and genocide that it becomes more hassle than it's worth. And I just want to reflect on how that's happened and where we might go from here and what it tells us about the state of the conversation about things. I do not fall on this subject the way that many of you might assume I do or the way that many of my peers who are critical of wokeism and social justice identity politics do. I am of the opinion that we should change the date of Australia Day. Australia Day right now on the 26th of January is uh, commemorated on the day on which the First Fleet and Captain James Cook planted the British colonial flag on Australian soil. That is an important fact. That makes it very different from the 4th of July in the United States, where what's being celebrated is the victory in a revolution. It makes it different from the 14th of July in France, Bastille Day, where what is being celebrated is the liberation of political prisoners. It makes it quite different from most countries' national days, where most countries were um, created through war or liberation. It may not be pretty for the vanquished. Um, It wasn't pretty for the Brits uh, when they lost their American empire. Uh, But nonetheless, we don't tend to commemorate these things on the day on which civilizations were dispossessed of their land. Part of the tricky thing for Australia is that Australia has never become a fully independent country. Of course, functionally, we're independent. We don't take no, no crap from nobody. We don't take no rules from Her Majesty. Oh, it's His Majesty now, isn't it? That sounds weird. His Majesty. Nonetheless, the head of state of Australia is His Majesty, King Charles. Talk about a bloody anachronism. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that hilarious that in 2024, the head of state of an independent, medium-sized, forward-looking, self-empowered country like Australia is this doddering old kind of eco-terrorist living in a palace in London. Nonetheless, it is, uh, it is that way. And that's true for New Zealand. And that's true for Canada. And that's true for a whole bunch of other uh, countries, which have never bothered to snip that final connection to the British monarchy. Um, as a result, we've never quite had that moment when we can say, now, my friends, we are truly free. We had a referendum about this in 1999, about becoming a republic. 
that would not mean anything in the Australian context other than just sort of changing the name on the document of the person who is ultimately responsible for sacking the government and signing bills into law, uh, changing that name from being the Governor General of Australia who works on behalf of the King or Queen to a, a person who is appointed by um, a significant majority of both Houses of Parliament. That was the idea in the 90s. It fell over largely because a number of Australians were hoodwinked by monarchists and conservatives into thinking that there could be an alternative model of a republic where the people would vote for a popularly elected president. Um, that's not really workable in the Australian context because in a parliamentary democracy, it's terribly important that the power lie with the executive branch. And you can't have this other person who may be able to claim some sort of public support uh, in this rival position that could trump the prime minister. It's important that the prime minister be the only person who is who even has the sheen of, of being popularly elected. Um, you can imagine constitutional crises being a fairly regular occurrence if there were political figures in the role of the president, and if the president had the ability to fire the government, as they do, as the king does, and uh, and not sign laws that the legislative branch had, had passed, it's important that that be an apolitical figurehead behaving in a scrupulously apolitical manner. And there's no way of ensuring that if you allow anybody to run for president and you allow the hoi polloi to vote anybody in. That could be a partisan political figure. What if you get uh, you know, a left-wing populist as the president and a right-winger as the prime minister. Um, it, that would spell doom. Therefore, the original idea was you have to have a scrupulously non-partisan figure, and the only way to do that is to make sure that, you know, like a two-thirds majority of both houses of parliament and the prime minister and the opposition leader all agree on this person, which means that that person would basically become probably a sportsman you know, you'd probably just end up with former Olympic athletes and they'd sit there in a nice big throny looking thing and they'd sign things with a big quill and then they'd put those things in the mouths of a pigeon and the pigeon would fly off to, I don't know, some some sort of Willy Wonka-esque majesty land where our laws get enacted in Australia. I'm not very big on how, the, how a bill becomes a law, as you can tell. Nonetheless, that's how it's going to work. So that fell apart because the monarchists and the conservatives cynically made their slogan. And you may not remember this if you're an Australian of a youngish age, but the slogan for the no to an Australian Republic campaign in the 90s was let the people have their say. Let the people have their say. In other words, vote no in the referendum to become a republic so that we can turn around very quickly and have another referendum, which will be a better model where you will have your say about a president in a model of republicanism that has never worked democratically anywhere else in the world, but we'll make it work here so that you can have your say. And of course, what that ended up doing was it meant that King Charles is now the head of state still of Australia. I'm not sure how that ended up giving the people their say. We're now a quarter of a century on and the people apparently still don't have their say. Um, it's now become a trickier proposition to become a republic in Australia because I think the instability of global democracies and of liberal democracy in the world order has made people much more leery of change. There was a kind of a boisterous optimism in the 1990s, the era of Bill Clinton playing his saxophone on Arsenio Hall's show and Jerry Seinfeld doing a show about nothing it was pre-9-11, it was pre-Arab Spring, it was pre-Iraq War, it was certainly pre-Donald Trump. 
And I think there was a sense that, you know, we won. We won. We'd won the Cold War. Things were good. Liberal democracy was ascendant. We can tinker at the edges. It's not going to make any difference. We can remove the British monarch and put in some figure skating Australian legend who everybody likes as our head of state. Who cares? In subsequent years, we've become less sanguine, I believe, about the future of liberal democracy. We've become more wary of the possibility that rival political systems like Chinese communism, which is not communism, but a kind of capitalist mercantilism and authoritarianism, that that could become a model that gets exported using Chinese soft power to all kinds of developing countries. And what's good for the Solomon Islands may someday be good for Indonesia and may someday be good for Australia. Um, There's a worry also that expansionist dictatorships like Russia will be allowed to get away with too much and after biting off half of Ukraine, we'll start tinkering around with little men, little faceless men creating little insurgencies in other Central European and Eastern European countries and that the stability of the world order cannot be taken for granted the way that it has been for our parents and grandparents. Um, thus, I am pessimistic. As, as someone who literally was the head of the Republican club at my university, at college, Republican meaning not Republican in the American context of a political being politically right wing, but in the constitutional context of simply saying, why don't we keep everything the same in Australia except just remove the ridiculous old lady in the palace and put an Australian in there. So that's where Republicanism is in Australia. And I go on that tangent to put some, uh, some sort of color and some flesh on the bones of this question about Australia Day. So we don't have that day of cutting the final tie to the United Kingdom. You could, I suppose, pick as a national day the day when Australia became a country. In other words, the federation of states became a a unit, much like the United States of America and unlike countries like the UK or New Zealand, Australia is a federation, so is Canada. These were, in other words, previously self-contained colonies um, that came together in an arrangement to create a country, uh, to create a common country. And that happened, unfortunately, on the 1st of January 1900, was it 1900 or 1901? Well, I'm a terrible Australian, don't even know the birth year of my country. Well, I do know that it was the 1st of January. So expecting people to celebrate a national day on the 1st of January is a little bit rough. You know, I mean, who's going to do that? You get up after, you get up all hungover with kind of moat dribbling down the side of your chin and like a, a party hat strapped half onto the side of your face because it slipped off while you fell asleep in someone else's vomit. I mean, yeah, that's a good New Year's Eve. And you wake up and go, yay, Australia Day. Let's do it all over again. Have more fireworks. So that's not going to work. Um, as an aside, an interesting little tidbit of information that you may not be aware of During the constitutional conventions prior to the creation of Australia in the 1890s, there were a series of constitutional conventions in which the colonies came together and said, okay, this is silly that we're all separate. Let's make a country. And Western Australia, which is one of the largest jurisdictions in the world, uh, you know, it occupies basically pretty much half the the size of the entire continent. And the continent itself is the same size as the contiguous United States. 
So you're talking about massive areas of basically nothing. I mean, you know, indigenous people will get angry at me for saying there's nothing there, but let's face it, from a Western perspective, there's fuck all. It's just lots of desert. Uh, very pretty desert, very pretty desert with very intriguing little spiky, thorny, lizardy things who hide underground and come out when the, when the mercury drops below 130 degrees Fahrenheit, which it rarely does. Nonetheless, Western Australia was not crazy about this idea in the 1890s of becoming part of this country. But New Zealand, which was another colony, was quite partial to the idea of teaming up with some of these larger colonies on the mainland. So there was a period in the 1890s where there was a serious possibility that Australia would become the eastern half of the continent and New Zealand as one country, with Western Australia being a separate country. And then at the last minute, New Zealand jumped out of the, the saucepan and Western Australia jumped in and we have the more logical uh, country of Australia. Although you'll note that Tasmania joined and there's nothing inherently logical about that particular island being part of Australia, but New Zealand not. They're both not connected to the mainland. Um, so nonetheless, this country comes into being at the beginning of the last century Um we spend all of our time, uh, you know, not worrying particularly about the head of state. It starts to come up in the 80s and 90s, this question of whether or not we should have our own head of state. And when that fails at around the same time, you start to get this pushback about January 26th. You start to get this conversation, which is initially a fringe conversation of, you know, I suppose radical uh, indigenous leaders who start to hold protests around Australia Day celebrations. They start to go outside, you know, Australia Day uh, festivities and fairgrounds and, uh, and, you know, play loud blaring music and bang on drums to disrupt people's good time and fly the Aboriginal flag. And at the time, it still seems a bit radical and a bit unseemly and a bit, um, you know, not the done thing. But over time, as Australia begins to reckon properly with the barbarism of its past and with the fact that there were a number of civilizations inhabiting this landmass who at the time, well, and still are the oldest continuous civilizations on the planet, uh, older even than any civilizations in Africa where there's been more change and more cross-pollination of different uh, societies. You had these cultures who were essentially preserved in aspic for tens and tens and tens of thousands of years doing their thing in, in a certain harmony with the land and then largely uh, exterminated and certainly having their interests completely uh, steamrolled by the most sophisticated civilization in the history of the world at the time, the British Empire. There was no way that was going to go well for the colonized. There was no way that the most, and it's difficult to talk about this stuff because one risks, you know, triggering a lot of tripwires and sort of blundering around treading on eggshells and getting oneself cancelled um, if you imply that indigenous or First Nations civilizations were primitive in some way. So let's not use that word, but let's just say that if you impose onto the evolution of humankind a very sort of 18th century idea of progress, right, where there is 
you know, Neanderthals and then cavemen and, uh, you know, then the uh, Homo erectus uh, gains supremacy and then you have like a, the discovery of fire and the wheel where you have, the, I guess, the Bronze Age and then you have the Iron Age and uh, then the Information Age you know, after the Industrial Revolution. You think about this kind of, you know, linear line of progress that the British imperialists would have been thinking about in the 1700s. You superimpose that onto Australian First Nations civilizations. Well, they weren't doing agriculture the way we understand it with farms and fences. They weren't using the wheel. Uh, they had fire, but they didn't use it to smelt metals or anything. So they were, in that perspective, pre-Bronze Age. Now, this is not a pejorative thing to say. You know, they survived a lot longer than any Western civilizations have had the opportunity to yet. So they're doing a lot of things right. But in terms of their tool-making abilities, you had the British Empire who had, you know, gunpowder that they were using up the wazoo and the most formidable ships that humankind had ever constructed and incredible seafaring capabilities and military prowess crashing into what was functionally, from their perspective, a pre-Bronze Age society. And the calamity that ensued for First Nations Australians is beyond comprehension. And those ripple effects exist to this day. And, you know, are not just ripple effects from the initial insult, from the initial aggression, but from a long-standing set of policies that regarded First Nations Australians as essentially being fauna, not really being fully-fledged human beings. I mean, as recently as the 1960s, they were being taken away, you know, Indigenous children were being taken away from their families, stolen, essentially, and installed in nice white religious families who are going to bring them up properly and teach them about real things, not all of this silly Aboriginal nonsense. Um, you know, the, many oftentimes there were no foster families, and so the children were taken away and they were put in orphanages in kind of hellish places run by brutal nurse ratchet-style nuns. Um, not always, not always. I can understand that conservatives might listen to this and say, look, a lot of these were well-meaning people trying to do the best, what they thought was the best thing for these children. Yeah, sure, okay. I mean, you know, there's always, there's a, there were good Nazis as well, <laughs> you know, not to, not to reach straight for the most obvious uh, parallel. But, you know, there's always good people and bad people in all things. That doesn't change the fact that the overarching uh, set of policies, the kind of network of policies towards First Nations people for at least a century and a half, were horrendous, barbaric, and dehumanizing. So we've recognized all that in the past couple of decades. We've come a tremendously long way. You know, a lot of Australians will say that we're uh, an irredeemably racist country and that, you know, we haven't really reckoned with our First Nations um, problem or that, that uh, kind of intrinsic moral stain. I disagree. I mean, I left this country when I left university and I came back a dozen years later, bouncing back and forth frequently in, in between. And over that dozen years between the mid-2000s and, I guess, the late 2010s, there was a massive earth-shattering shift in the visibility of First Nations issues as a as a matter of public concern. I mean, it, it was probably second only to climate change becoming an, an issue over that over the course of that time. I mean, when I left, you know, in the early 2000s, it would have been regarded as 
tokenistic and weird to do a land acknowledgement or an acknowledgement of country, as they're called, at an awards ceremony or something. Nowadays, it would be considered weird not to start a Zoom meeting between a couple of white middle managers about HR policy without doing a tokenistic land acknowledgement. Now, setting aside the question of whether or not that's, that's a good evolution or whether that's just wealthy, white, university-educated people patting each other on the back without actually having to do anything substantive to redress the inequalities between white people and First Nations people. (sighs) Let's just at least acknowledge the change and say that to those people who wanted to bring First Nations issues to the fore, that is uh, a triumph of sorts. So there's been at least a symbolic change. There's been an attempt at practical change, repeated attempts at practical change, as you've had left-wing governments pour lots of money into things like what was rather comically called literally AB study. There was Oz study, which was um, a student loan program, interest-free student loans for everybody. And then there was AB study, which was just for Aboriginal people, which sounds incredibly condescending in the hindsight Um, and a little bit racist, doesn't it? AB study. Um, so there were programs like that. There was uh, there was affirmative action in universities. Uh, you know there were there were concerted attempts to make life better on the ground. And then what you found and what I saw as I was traveling around Australia in uh, in my university years, four friends and I bought a, a four wheel drive and drove around this uh, this great continent of ours over the course of a few months. What you would see is that you'd get to outback towns, and depending on the day of the week. Uh, you'd either have whole communities of Indigenous Australians hanging out in the public park, drinking and sniffing glue, or you'd have them lining up along the street waiting for the welfare office to open if it was welfare day so they could get their welfare checks. Um, That sounds like I'm being racist. I'm literally not. I'm just describing what was happening and what we were seeing. I'm sure there were a lot of productive First Nations people uh, who were at work who we weren't observing, but the phenomenon was true of there being a kind of prison, a kind of prison of welfare that was pretty obvious to anybody who understood what was going on in these majority indigenous towns where there was not an ethic of entrepreneurialism. There was not an ethic of you know pulling young people up by their bootstraps and giving them a vision of themselves that was bigger than, um, than where their community currently was. Um, I'm not casting blame for that. I mean, it's not the job of people who've been dispossessed and shat upon for centuries to figure out how to do it for themselves. But there was a collective failure of Australia to to create a context in which ind- Indigenous self-fulfillment and flourishing could occur. And there was this attempt to throw lots of money at the problem, thinking that that would solve the the guilt wound of white people. And I'm sure it did for a time until we realised that, you know, would you really flourish best if you had just a a fortnightly or weekly dollop of cash being handed to you, no strings attached, no questions asked, just because of the color of your skin or your your life circumstance. Uh, You know, I mean, even it was during the 1990s that even the left in the form of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton uh, and in Australia, slightly earlier, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating realized that the welfare state as we knew it had not been serving people terribly well and it needed to be connected in some way to productivity and to inducements to get off your bum and do something with your life, so to speak. 
So there's been this pickle in Australia's relationship to Indigenous policy where you've had left-wing governments throw lots of money at the problem, problem thinking that would fix it. And it did fix the problem as they saw it because the, the main problem that they were concerned about fixing was white guilt, not black advancement. So you fix the problem of white guilt by throwing lots of money at it. Then you realize that it's not actually fixing the problem that Indigenous Australians want fixed, which is the inequality, the so-called gap between the outcomes of white Australians and Indigenous Australians, or rather non-Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Australians, because even non-white migrant Australians, newcomers, outperform uh, Indigenous Australians. So it's clearly not a question of racism per se. It's not a question of skin color per, per se. It's a, it's a structural question about opportunity. So then conservative governments would come in and they'd try to overhaul the whole thing. And they would listen to dissenting First Nations leaders uh, who would say, you know, there is rampant crime, alcoholism and domestic violence in First Nations communities. We need to get tough on it. We need to start making funding contingent on outcomes uh, we need to get more entrepreneurial. We need to be more um, essentially right-wing in our attitude towards the dependence that has been created among these uh, communities. And at one point, the John Howard government, who was Australia's, I think, second longest serving prime minister, um, actually sent in the army, essentially, into remote Northern Territory communities uh, at the request of some Indigenous leaders where you would have policies like alcohol bans, for example, uh, where there was no alcohol, you, know, you, you still have dry towns where there's no alcohol available. Um, and there was a kind of a militarization of Australia's response to cleaning up this mess. Uh, that was regarded by the left as being brutalizing and a failure. So it swung back in the other direction. And, you know, anyone who claims to have an easy answer about all this is lying or mistaken. We just tried um, within the past six months to have a referendum about literally changing the constitution to create an indigenous advisory body that would uh, give its advice to parliament on bills that were under consideration that affected First Nations Australians. Uh, and it tanked woefully, um, in large part, I believe, because of dissent within the indigenous communities, confusing the message for the guilty white university educated uh, class. You know, a lot of people said that the lesson to take away from the failure of that referendum is that Australia is racist. I think that's too easy. Of course, racists voted against that referendum, but you didn't have to be a racist to vote against that referendum. I know that for sure because I was hosting a daily talkback radio show and hearing from a lot of people who were saying things like, why do we need to change the constitution forever? in order to redress an inequality that we hope is temporary? Why do we need to elevate on the basis of race one group when there are lots of disadvantaged groups in Australia? Why do we have to undermine the longstanding Australian ethos of egalitarianism and equality before the law by codifying racial difference in our constitution? Um, how is it fair to the you know, impoverished Chinese Australian shopkeeper whose children came here as refugees, whose parents rather came here as refugees after Tiananmen Square, that they should not have an additional means of democratic input into the process of the of Australian statecraft, but First Nations people should. Um, so there were lots of these things that I don't think, I think only it's an abuse of the English language to call such concerns racist. 
Um, in fact, it denigrates and undermines the utility of the word racist. And it sort of lets real racists off the hook by casting the net so wide that anyone who has can, you know, small C conservative concerns about a, a radical change to the country's constitution can only be motivated by racism. You know, let's, let's keep racism for the racists, shall we? Instead of using racism as a catch-all term for more than half the population. So that was the most recent. Oh, and just to clarify why there was dissent within the Indigenous uh, community about this, uh, you know, I spoke to a number of young Indigenous leaders who felt that the referendum was just a capitulation to, uh, to white tyranny, that the state of Australia is fundamentally illegitimate. Sovereignty over this land has never been ceded by First Nations people to white people. And that this was just a way of trying to get Indigenous people to be complicit in the crime of the Australian state. Uh, and what's needed is real reform, by which they meant a treaty. Now, a treaty between First Nations people and Australian and the rest of Australia is conceivable. It's happened in other places. New Zealand has a treaty with the Māori, their First Nations um, um, ethnicity. But it's hard to imagine getting there if you first reject the idea of, uh, of what, what we were calling a voice, which was this independent body, advisory body. You know, the, the steps, the pathway to a treaty, uh, according to mm, you know, many Indigenous leaders who had codified this in previous conventions where they'd gathered together to advise governments on what they wanted to see happen, was that you would create this advisory body and then the advisory body would draft a treaty at some point. And although the Prime Minister at the time kept saying, well, he's still the prime minister, kept saying, this is not about a treaty. This is not a pathway to a treaty. He was only saying that so that he didn't scare off half the population who didn't want a treaty. The reality is you were supposed to create the, who would you make a treaty with if there's no advisory body to draft the treaty? I mean, you know, First Nations Australians were a bunch of different civilizations, a bunch of different peoples with different languages all scattered all over this massive landmass. Um, you know, some of them were living on, in, on island chains off the mainland and had practically never met other First Nations uh, people. So you need representatives of all of these different First Nations nations to come together in some forum and figure out what the treaty would look like. Um, so, you know, setting aside the question of whether or not a treaty is legit, I, I remember John Howard, the former conservative prime minister who I just alluded to, who had sent in the troops being interviewed, saying, hang on, you make treaties with foreign countries. You don't make treaties with portions of your own people. We are a demos as Australians. We are a single community, a single unit, you know, multiple communities within that overarching umbrella community. But nonetheless, you don't make treaties with each other. You make agreements with each other in a democratic process and you make treaties with other countries. Um, it kind of rips apart the fabric of the democratic state if you start making treaties with it, if it starts making treaties with its constituent parts. Setting aside that criticism, there was no way, even if you're in favor of a treaty, there's no way of getting there without having the voice. So the idea that many aspirational or shall we say radical young uh, First Nations uh, activists who were critical of the referendum uh, had this idea that you would doom the referendum so that we could turn around and do some real reform like a treaty was so depressingly misguided. Like I'd rather, if you want the referendum to fail because you don't want to have any real world uh, progress because you think the state is illegitimate, 
that's fine, just say so. But don't doom the referendum with this pie-in-the-sky argument that you're going to turn around and have a, another larger reform in the wake of it. It's exactly the same mistake that happened with the referendum about the Republic in 1999, where let the people have their say was supposed to lead to an imminent alternative model of a, an Australian Republic with an Australian head of state. And of course it didn't. It was just a bait and switch. It was a way of dooming something that the proponents of that uh, of that model never wanted to see happen in the first place, which was an Australian Republic. Similarly, you've just had this uh, this second ref- this other referendum on this First Nations body, in which you had people make the crazy claim that you could get an entire nation of people, which is ninety seven percent non Indigenous to go through the huge expense and hassle of trying to vote on this thing and create this new body for the 3% of the population who are First Nations. That number has been inflating dramatically in recent years because it becomes cooler to be First Nations and to trace your 264th you know, of a fraction of your bloodline to First Nations, but let's call it about 3%. Um, the idea that you know we would create a special uh, you know, constitutional carve out for that population, and we would all focus on doing this, and then that would fail, and we'd turn around and go, you know what, we should do all of that over again, except bigger, more expensive, and more radical. How about it, folks? I mean, that is just not the way that politics works. It's not the way that human psychology works. And I said this until I was blue in the face before the referendum, but the people who wanted to doom it uh, succeeded. And I think the kerfuffle of confusion and mixed messaging uh, was what did that referendum in. So all of this is just a potted history way of saying we have what seems to be something of a kind of intransigent, uh, you know, unbreachable rift that exists between First Nations Australia and non-Indigenous Australians. There is enormous goodwill, I believe, from non-Indigenous Australians towards the Indigenous. And you can see that in the fact that Australia Day is now a taboo day to celebrate. This is a tragic thing. Australia is worth celebrating. Australia is a fabulous country. Australia is a tolerant country. It is a peace-loving country. It's an innovative country. It's a bloody rich country. It's a spectacularly physically beautiful country. It has its faults. It has its flaws. Of course it does. It has its dark history to reckon with. But, you know, rather than comparing it to an ideal country that you've invented in your head, which is just like Australia, but doesn't have any of its downsides, compare it to actual other countries that really exist. Is Australia better or worse than Nigeria, than Vietnam, than Bangladesh, than Luxembourg, than Kazakhstan, even than Brazil or Canada? Australia has a lot going for it and we deserve to have an opportunity to celebrate and be grateful for what this country is. I do not blame the demise of Australia Day as that opportunity to celebrate on First Nations people. It's completely legitimate to say, why do you have to have the celebration on the very day that Europeans invaded our landmass? I mean, it's a bit, it smells a bit off, doesn't it? 
I lay blame of this at the feet of conservatives who keep not wanting to change the day. They have this crazy idea that if they just will away opposition to the day, that it's going to somehow become a, a day on which we can all come together and join arms and celebrate together. That ship has sailed. Pardon the metaphor that invokes the first fleet. That ship has sailed. Australia Day will never again in Australia be an unruffled, undivisive, easy day to celebrate Australia or to celebrate anything. That is never happening again. That is never happening again. So if you want Australia Day to remain on January 26th, what you are arguing for is for Australia not to have a day on which all Australians can celebrate, including you, including you, the conservative who is pro-January 26th, because you're aware of the overtones. You're aware of what it means contextually. You're aware of the cultural divide. So when you, even if you go out on January 26th and you fly a big Australian flag out the window of your car and you have a picnic in a park to watch the fireworks with big Australian flags all over the place, you know what that means to a significant portion of the country. You know that that means fuck you to a significant portion of the country, not just First Nations Australians, but anyone who believes that it's inappropriate, unseemly, undignified to be waving in the faces of First Nations Australians our ability to trounce them hundreds of years ago and to demolish and denigrate their civilizations. You know that it has those overtones. It reminds me a little bit of the whole debate about imagery and iconography around after October 7th and the Hamas attacks. You know, why can't I just uh, fly a Palestinian flag? Let's all have solidarity with the Palestinians. Let's all chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Great. That might mean something innocuous to you, but you're surely aware that it doesn't mean something innocuous to Jews who notice that between the river and the sea, there is a thing called Israel. And if Palestine existed between the river and the sea, then there wouldn't be any Jews living in the Middle East. And they understandably worry about what your intentions are for the Jews who currently live in the Middle East since they've been exterminated and run out of every other Arab country. And why wouldn't they be in this new Arab-Palestinian land as well? So just parking to the side whether or not you think that is a legitimate fear, you must concede that there is a cultural difference between the interpretations of symbols like the Palestinian flag or the Star of David, indeed, if you were flying the Star of David now, it would be seen as an incendiary act of supporting the worst excesses of Zionism by some and the, supporting the you know demolition of Gaza and the killing of babies. And you could just say, what, I'm just flying uh, you know, the Star of David. This is the Israeli flag. This is the flag of my people. We, we've been around for 5,000 years. Uh, you know, This is a symbol that has meaning to me. Yeah, it has meaning to you. It has different meaning to other people. And there's a parallel here with January 26th. You can go around saying January 26th is innocuous to me. It's just a time when all Australians can come together. Fine for you. But you know that you live in a community where that's not true for a large minority, perhaps even a majority of people. So just change the bloody date so that we can all celebrate this great country. Like, yes, you can compare... You can whine all you want about the fact that the left has made January 26th controversial. You can say, why can't we all just come around and do a big kumbaya about that date? But you're living in cloud cuckoo land. That's a fantasy. 
again, you know, instead of comparing Australia to actual other countries, you're comparing January 26th to a, as it exists to a January 26th that you've invented in your brain in which First Nations people are unruffled by that date. They're not unruffled by that date. They are very ruffled by that date. And they've managed to persuade a lot of other Australians, myself included, that that date is inherently ruffle worthy and we should be ruffled by it. So there is no going back. Now, if you want to have the thing that you think January 26th is, which is an uncomplicated, guilt-free way of celebrating Australia for all Australians, change the date. What should it be changed to? I don't know. I don't really care. Hopefully make it in winter so that we can all go out or maybe like May, September. I don't give a shit. Just make up some stupid date. It shouldn't be January 26th. Anyway, hope that's useful. Happy Australia Day. Sorry, Australia Day. Sad Australia Day. Have a good long week.